I'd like to introduce our guest, Amy Chua. Amy Chua is the John Duff Jr. Professor of Law at Yale Law School. She's the author of World on Fire and a noted expert in the fields of international business, ethnic conflict, and globalization. She lives in New Haven, Connecticut with her husband and daughters, Sophia and Louisa, and their Samoyeds, Coco and Pushkin. Now join me in welcoming Amy Chua. Thanks so much, Gregory, and thank you all for coming this evening. It is a great pleasure, uh, an honor, and so much fun to be here in LA uh, and to be part of the Sokolo uh, Public Square series. And I'd also like to offer special thanks to Gregory Rodriguez, Laura, Dolce, and the um, rest of the uh, staff for inviting me and um, organizing everything. So as instructed, my plan is to speak for uh, about 40 minutes. And what I thought I would do is just start by presenting the main thesis of uh, this new book called Day of Empire with its modest subtitle, How Hyperpowers Rise to Global Dominance and Why They Fall. Um, and I'll try to illustrate that thesis with specific historical examples from the ancient Persian Empire founded in 550 BC to the great Mongol Empire of the 13th century to the British Empire. I'll then uh, shift my focus back to the present day and say something about the implications of my thesis for the United States in the 21st century. Um, if we have time, I'll also offer some observations and predictions about uh, rising powers on the world scene like China uh, and the EU, and then we'll open things up for questions. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, so let me begin um, by taking you back to 1999. It was really just 10 years ago, but at least to me it feels like ages ago, when, uh, really in a fit of pique, France's foreign minister, Hubert Bedrin, declared that the United States had become the world's single hyperpower, dominant in all categories, militarily, economically, technologically, and culturally, and that this was unacceptable to France. <laughs> Although Vedrin meant this term hyperpower critically, in coining that term, he actually captured a historical development of fundamental importance. And that's what my book is about. Not just empires or great powers or even superpowers, but this much rarer and more unusual phenomenon of hyperpowers. That is, the remarkably few societies by my count, barely more than a handful in all of history that amassed such extraordinary economic and military might that they basically dominated the world. Who were history's hyperpowers? And what, if anything, could they teach us about our own times? Well, it took me over five years to reach my own answers to these questions. And what I found is a really remarkable pattern. And that is that for all their enormous differences, every hyperpower in history was strikingly tolerant and pluralistic during its rise to global preeminence, at least judged by the standards of its time. Indeed, in every case, tolerance was indispensable to the achievement of global hegemony. Conversely, the decline of hyperpowers has repeatedly coincided with intolerance and xenophobia. But here's the catch. It was also too much tolerance, in a sense, 
that sowed the seeds of decline. Now, I know those are big claims, so let me first clarify some of the terms that I'm using. As you can imagine, one of the biggest challenges I faced in working on this project was how to define a hyperpower, um, especially given that the world was so much larger 2,000 or even 500 years ago before ships, planes, and technology drastically shrank it. So, for example, Rome in its heyday was clearly a hyperpower. I mean, if Rome wasn't a hyperpower, then there's never been a hyperpower. And yet, halfway across the globe, um, there existed another great empire, Han Dynasty China, with which Rome had virtually no contact. But then I was thinking, if the point is that Rome was dominant in the world it knew and inhabited, then weren't the Aztecs dominant in their world, and the Egyptians in theirs, and so on? In fact, on that thinking, isn't even Tahiti a hyperpower in its own little world? Uh, obviously, any definition that includes Tahiti as a global hegemon is too broad. But what is the right definition? What exactly does differentiate Rome from, say, uh, the Aztecs, who at one time dominated Central America, but who could never have been considered a world hegemon? Well, several factors are obvious. One is the sheer size of the Roman Empire, about 2 million square miles, as compared to about 77,000 square miles for the Aztecs. Also, the immense population that Rome ruled, about 60 million people, as compared to about just 1 million for the Aztecs. And finally, the fact that no power on earth was economically or militarily superior to Rome during its golden age. In short, Rome didn't merely achieve dominance in its world, it achieved dominance in the world. So accordingly, for my purposes, I consider a nation or empire a hyperpower only if, one, its economic and military power clearly surpasses that of all its contemporaneous rivals, and two, it projects its power over so vast an area of the globe and over so immense a population that it breaks the bounds of mere local or even regional preeminence. So, just to give you an example, the United States, even, during the Cold War, was not a hyperpower, right? It was only a superpower, because back then, it had a formidable rival, the former Soviet Union, of roughly comparable strength. Now, in a moment, I'll tell you which societies I think do qualify as hyperpowers, but let me first say something about why tolerance of all things should be so vital to world dominance. There's actually a really simple and I think intuitive explanation, and that is that to be world dominant, not just regionally or locally dominant, but world dominant, a society has to be at the very forefront of the world's technological, military, and economic frontier. And at any given historical moment, the most valuable human capital the world has to offer uh, the smartest people, the most creative people, the most enterprising people, the most driven people, the people with the most networks, the world's best human capital at any point is never going to be found within any one ethnic group or within any one religious group. To pull away from its rivals on a global scale, a society must pull into itself and motivate the world's best and brightest, regardless of ethnicity, religion, or background. This is what every hyperpower in history has done, 
And the way they've done it is through tolerance. Now, some of you must be thinking, if you were listening to my earlier list of historical hyperpowers, wait a second, this woman thinks that the Mongols were tolerant? Genghis Khan's ravaging hordes who slaughtered entire villages and then used the corpses as moat fill, who poured molten silver into the eyes and ears of their enemies? Can the Mongols, or even the British Empire with its colonialism and white man's burden, can these empires really be described as tolerant? Well, uh, yes, I think so, but that's because the tolerance that I'm talking about is not tolerance in the modern human rights sense. By tolerance, I don't mean equality or even respect. Rather, as I will use the term, tolerance simply means letting lots of different kinds of people, even if you don't particularly like them, live, work, and prosper in your society, and even if only for instrumental reasons. To be a little more formal, I will use tolerance to refer to the degree of freedom with which individuals or groups of different ethnic, religious, racial, or other backgrounds are permitted to coexist, participate, and rise in society. Note, this is important, that tolerance as I'm using it is a relative concept. What matters is not whether a society is tolerant according to some absolute universal standard, but only whether it's more tolerant than its rivals. This is like the old joke I'm sure you've all heard about the two friends who go hiking and discover that they're being chased by a bear. One hiker sits down and immediately starts putting on his running shoes. And his friend says, are you crazy? You'll never outrun that bear. To which the first hiker replies, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> Similarly, in the late 19th century, there was plenty of anti-Semitism in the United States. But for the Jews who were fleeing pogroms in Europe, America was a relative haven and land of opportunity. That's what I mean by relative tolerance. One more preliminary clarification to avoid any misunderstanding. My thesis is not that more tolerance always leads to more prosperity. It would be great if that were true, but sadly, plenty of brutally intolerant societies have become rich and powerful. Nazi Germany is a case in point. So my thesis really is much narrower. It's simply that tolerance is necessary for world dominance, if you want to be a hyperpower. Now, whether it's a good thing to be a hyperpower, uh, or whether it's good for the world to have a hyperpower, are completely different questions, which we can come back to. Let me now turn to some concrete examples, beginning with the hyperpowers of antiquity. Basically, in ancient times, tolerance was the only way to build the largest, most powerful military. If you limit your army to, say, only pure-blooded Spartans, your army's going to only be so big. It's going to be inherently limited in size, because how many pure-blooded Spartans are there? By contrast, if you open up your military to warriors of any race or background, you could amass a really huge army. The world is your limit. And this is exactly what the Achaemenid Persians did. Founded in 550 BC by Cyrus the Great, Achaemenid Persia was history's first hyperpower. In terms of size, it dwarfed and in fact conquered and annexed the great kingdoms of Assyria, Babylonia, Mesopotamia, and Egypt, as well as the Greek city-states. At its peak, the empire ruled 40 million people, nearly one-third of the world's total population. 
how could a relatively small number of Persians conquer and govern so vast a territory and population through tolerance? In contrast to rival kings, who always tried to show their power by forcing their own gods on conquered peoples, Cyrus the Great did just the opposite. He and his successors were famous for their willingness to let conquered peoples worship their own gods and follow their own laws and customs. So the Persian policy upon conquest was basically to replace the existing king, to put him in a palace somewhere, replace him with a Persian governor or satrap, but below that satrap to allow local elites to retain their positions of authority, interfering very little with the daily lives of their subject peoples. Now, in addition to making conquered peoples more compliant, the most crucial benefit the Achaemenid kings derived through this kind of strategic tolerance was that it allowed them to build the largest war machine ever known to man. The Achaemenid army was a colossal multinational force, drawing its strength from Greek mercenaries, Phoenician sailors, Libyan charioteers, and hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers from Ethiopia, Bactria, Sogdiana, and elsewhere in the empire. But the Achaemenids' legendary tolerance was not followed by one of the later kings, Xerxes, a um, famous villain whose uh, um, brutality and intolerance are usually said to have sparked resistance and rebellion throughout the empire, triggering its decline and eventual disintegration. Now, in fact, it's actually hard to know whether Xerxes' intolerance actually led to the decline or whether his intolerance was just a response to a decline that had already begun. I mean, most likely uh, both propositions are true. I just want to flag that my thesis is asymmetrical. That is, I make a very strong claim that tolerance is indispensable for the achievement of global dominance, uh, but I only say on the decline that intolerance and decline are starkly associated without talking about cause and effect. In any event, after the fall of the Achaemenid Empire around 330 BC, the world did not see another hyperpower for another 400 years until Rome's high empire in the second century AD. Now, um, I might surprise you, but I'm actually not going to talk much about Rome, partly because so many other people have. Instead, I just want to make two points. First, Rome far exceeded Achaemenid Persia in its tolerance. Whereas all the Persian kings and virtually all the governors were ethnic Persians, in Rome there was no ethnic ceiling. The Romans didn't just permit warriors from any uh, nation to be in their army. They permitted educated men of any race or nationality to rise to the very highest positions of authority, including even the position of emperor itself. The Emperor Septimius Severus, for example, was a North African married to a Syrian. Second point I want to make about Rome. Again, unlike the Persians, Rome combined its tolerance with an uncanny ability to Romanize. That is to make conquered foreign peoples feel Roman and to think of themselves as Roman and to identify proudly with the Roman Empire. Later, I'll talk a little bit about how Rome did this with, I think, some sobering implications for the United States. Rome lasted longer than any other hyperpower in history, but it too, of course, eventually fell. Among the many causes of Rome's fall, one of the most important was Rome's sharp turn to intolerance, both religious and ethnic. 
In 312 AD, the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and the Roman Empire, so long famed for its religious openness, embarked on an intensifying wave of persecutions. As Montesquieu later wrote, unlike the ancient Romans who fortified their empire by tolerating every cult, their successors reduced the empire to nothing by cutting out one after another all the sects incompatible with the dominant one. At the same time, Rome's ethnic tolerance was pushed beyond its breaking point by the influx of large populations of German barbarians from the north who were viewed as unassimilable. The Romans were frightened and disgusted by these Vandals, Goths, Visigoths, and other Germans. They were repelled by their smell and their huge beastly limbs and by the rancid butter they smeared in their yellow hair. For the first time, Rome adopted apartheid policies, barring intermarriage and segregating the Germans, who were subjected to growing hostility, violence, and even massacres. The Germans reacted with a vengeance. In the 5th century, Germanic tribes sacked Rome, overran Gaul, took Carthage and North Africa, and sacked Rome again. By 476, the Western Roman Empire was no more. Now, in my book, I discuss two other pre-modern hyperpowers, Tang Dynasty China and the Great Mongol Empire. And for lack of time, let me just talk very briefly about the latter, the Mongols. Uh, they're my own favorite case. I think they're absolutely fascinating. The Mongols were nomads. Even their leaders, or khans, were illiterate. The Mongols had no science, no engineering, no written language of their own. They had no architecture. They lived in yurts or tents made from the felt of yaks. They did not even have the technology to bake bread. And yet, the Mongols came to rule over an empire far larger than the Romans ever conquered, half the known world, including the most magnificent cities of the time, Baghdad, Bukhara, Kiev, Moscow, Damascus, and Samarkand. How did the Mongols do this? Again, through tolerance. First, Genghis Khan, the founder of the empire, deliberately and quite ingeniously overcame the clan and tribal animosities that had divided the people of the Mongolian steppe for hundreds of years, uniting them under a single identity, the people of the felt walls. In this way, he put together an inter-ethnic army large enough to conquer northern China. From there, Genghis Khan shrewdly recruited men from conquered populations with the skills and technology that the Mongols themselves lacked. Most critically, Genghis Khan drew into his service large numbers of Chinese engineers who knew how to construct powerful siege engines with portable towers, retractable ladders, and massive catapults that hurled stones and flaming liquids to think imagery, Lord of the Rings. Right? It was only by incorporating these foreign engineers who actually traveled with the Mongol army and often just built these instruments of attack right, right on the spot, felling trees and constructing them. It was only by incorporating these foreign engineers that the Mongols were able to overcome the great walled cities of Central Asia, Persia, and Eastern Europe. For all their ruthlessness in battle, the Mongols were far more religiously tolerant than any other contemporaneous power. While Christian Europe was burning heretics at the stake, Genghis Khan, who himself uh, worshipped nature, he was an animist, declared religious freedom for all subject peoples, 
His sons and grandsons married wives of all ethnic and religious backgrounds, and their armies included Buddhists, Muslims, and Christians of every sect. In the end, different parts of the Mongol Empire collapsed at different times, but everywhere, decline was accompanied by a stark turn to ethnic and religious intolerance. By 1300, the Mongol Khans of Russia and Persia had converted to Islam, and they became increasingly fanatic in their persecution of non-Muslims. In China, the problem was ethnic intolerance. Unlike Kublai Khan, the first Mongol emperor of China who loved Chinese culture and embraced it and protected it, the later Mongol rulers grew more and more paranoid and anti-Chinese, with one Mongol minister right before the collapse of the empire proposing that all individuals in China surnamed Chang, Wang, Liu, Li, and Chao be executed. This plan would have eliminated 90% of China's population. But before it could be carried out, the Mongols were sent fleeing back to the steppe by the new Ming Chinese rulers. This brings us to the end of the pre-modern hyperpowers. The next society to arguably attain global dominance was, amazingly, the tiny Dutch Republic of the 17th century. The secret to Holland's stunning success was, once again, tolerance. But now, tolerance of a radically new kind. After the fall of Rome in 476 came the rise of the great religious empires, those of Christianity and Islam. Now, unlike the ancient polytheistic religions, which assumed that different people would worship different gods, I mean, every city had its own god, both Christianity and Islam insisted that there was one and only one true faith. In this sense, Christianity and Islam were inherently intolerant in a way that the ancient religions were not. Whether or not sanctioned by scripture, the result was a millennium of religious strife and bloodshed. In the West, the era of religious wars slowly gave way to the Enlightenment. Now, for the Enlightenment thinkers, tolerance was not merely instrumental. It was a human right. And thus was born the modern ideal of tolerance that we're all familiar with. Persecution was not only bad strategy, it violated the rights of man. The Dutch Republic was the first European state to embrace the new tolerance. In 1579, the United Provinces of the Netherlands declared in its founding charter that each person shall remain free in his religion, and no one shall be investigated or persecuted because of his religion. Almost overnight, the Dutch Republic became a magnet for religious refugees from all over Europe. French Huguenots, German Lutherans, Mennonites, Quakers, pilgrims. Of the tens of thousands of immigrants that poured in, two groups in particular were pivotal to Holland's rise. First were the Jewish bankers, merchants, and diamond traders fleeing the Spanish and Portuguese inquisitions. These men, among the richest in the world, financiers to Europe's royalty, bankrollers of armies, turned Amsterdam into the world's commercial and financial center. Second, and even more important, were the Protestant industrialists and artisans from Antwerp, Ghent, and Bruges, who brought with them not only wealth, but critical industrial secrets, the world's most advanced textile technology, and, as Max Weber would later put it, the spirit of capitalism itself. With the decisive contributions of these two groups, the Dutch soon became the financial, technological, and commercial leaders of the world. 
far and away the richest nation on earth with a global trading empire and an unheard of degree of upward mobility. But even so, some of you must be thinking, was the tiny Dutch Republic really a hyperpower? Uh, I think the answer is yes, and I'm happy to make the case during Q&A. Uh, but for now, just let me say that the rise of the Dutch Republic marked a dramatic transformation in the nature of both world power and tolerance. With the Dutch, commerce replaced conquest as the driving engine of wealth creation, and immigration replaced invasion and annexation as the best way to incorporate the world's best and brightest. Tolerance was equally essential to Great Britain, the successors to the Dutch on the world stage. For most of the 16th and 17th centuries, what is now Great Britain was a pit of vicious religious and ethnic warfare. Protestants massacred Catholics, Catholics beheaded Protestants, Englishmen slaughtered Irish, Scotch, and Welsh, all of whom retaliated in kind. There was, however, no persecution of Jews because there were no Jews. They had all been expelled in 1290. All this was to change after 1689. In that year, Parliament passed the Bill of Rights and the Act of Toleration. 20 years later, England united with Scotland and Wales, and despite continuing anti-Catholic bigotry and brutality, by the early 18th century, Great Britain had replaced the Dutch Republic in reputation as the most tolerant nation in Europe. Because of England's turn to tolerance after 1689, three groups in particular, Jews, Huguenots, and most importantly, the Scots, were able to enter into British society with unprecedented freedom. The benefits to Great Britain were immediate. England became the new haven for Europe's Jews, who, with astonishing rapidity, founded the London Stock Exchange, brought diamond and bullion trading to Britain, and almost single-handedly made London the world's new financial center. Meanwhile, instead of wasting resources fighting the Scots, now the Scots became Great Britain's chief empire builders and the driving force in Britain's industrial revolution. The most critical inventions of the era, the Watt steam engine, the hot blast furnace, the integrated cotton mill, were all created by Scots who were also, incidentally, Britain's leading thinkers and writers. David Hume and Adam Smith were both Scots. There's a reason that no one ever talks about the English Enlightenment, but they do, of course, talk about the Scottish Enlightenment. But if Great Britain followed the Dutch formula of tolerance at home by turning itself into a kind of a haven for religious uh, refugees, England basically pursued a Roman strategy abroad. Like the Romans, the British conquered, annexed, and colonized with India, the jewel of the empire. Like the Romans, the British harnessed local elites and local manpower, filling its imperial army with native soldiers. In the First World War, more than one million Indians served the empire abroad. But British tolerance, too, had limits it could not cross. At home, the problem was Catholic Ireland. Abroad, the problem was racism. The British could never quite treat their non-white colonies the same way they treated their white dominions. And these limits on British tolerance, these failures to live up to its own Enlightenment ideals would come back to haunt the empire, helping to tear it apart in the 20th century. Meanwhile, another power, itself a former British colony, was rising. 
This brings me at last to the United States. Now, of America's ascent to hyperpower status, I'm going to say almost nothing here. If my thesis is correct that the secret to world dominance lies in relative tolerance, that is, the ability to attract the world's best and brightest talent, then the United States, uh, as a nation of immigrants founded on the principle of tolerance, has always had a leg up. To be sure, while the United States has always been relatively religiously tolerant, it demonstrated extreme racial and ethnic intolerance for much of its history, most notably towards Native Americans, African Americans, and other non-whites. It was only after the Second World War, and with Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Revolution, that the United States began developing, however fitfully and imperfectly, into one of the most ethnically and racially open societies in world history. Not coincidentally, this was also the period in which the United States achieved world dominance. Now, in my book, I do try to make the case that America's growth and success always from the beginning, from its westward expansion, to its industrial explosion, to winning the race for the atomic bomb, to Silicon Valley and its domination of the computer age, that all these things were direct products of immigrant contributions. But I'm not going to try to make that case here today. Instead, what I'd like to do with my remaining time is to return to uh, the 21st century, uh, which looks pretty dire these days, and to address the implications of my thesis for the United States going forward. Um, let me focus first on the international dimensions, that is, America's place uh, in the world. For all the dramatic transformations of the last 2,000 years, the United States today amazingly faces the same fundamental problem confronted by every hyperpower in history. But precisely because it is a modern democratic hyperpower, the United States is especially ill-equipped to deal with this problem. Let me explain. Every hyperpower in history has faced a difficulty that, for lack of a better term, I will call the problem of glue. By this, I mean the problem of finding ways to generate goodwill, cooperation, and ideally loyalty among the foreign peoples that are conquered and dominated. History's first hyperpower never solved this problem. As the Achaemenid Persian Empire expanded, it came to include increasingly diverse peoples. Yet the empire had no overarching political identity or glue to unite it. Only sheer military might held it together. So under Persian rule, Greeks and Egyptians certainly didn't see themselves as Persians. They hated the Persians or uh, feel any loyalty to the empire. As a result, less than a century after its founding, the empire was riven by fragmentation and separatist rebellions. When a stronger, more charismatic military leader, Alexander of Macedon, swept through the region, elites throughout the empire simply switched their allegiances. They were not traitors because they had never been patriots. A similar fate befell the Mongols. With no common identity to bind together its European, Middle Eastern, and Asian conquered peoples, who frankly were disgusted by their barbarian overlords, the Mongol world empire quickly splintered into four large kingdoms before breaking up altogether. Of all of history's hyperpowers, only Rome really solved this problem of glue. 
Great Britain came close, but only Rome really solved it, which I think goes a long way towards explaining its spectacular longevity. Now, it's very popular these days to compare the United States to Rome, and it's a great comparison in many ways. But ancient Rome had one huge advantage over the United States, and that is that Rome could make the people it conquered and dominated part of the Roman Empire. Defeated people from Scotland to Spain to West Africa all became subjects of the greatest power on earth. Even more significantly, Rome turned large numbers of conquered men, both elites and common soldiers, into Roman citizens, clothed with the high status and privileges that such citizenship entailed. So by extending citizenship to Britons, Gauls, Spaniards, and Africans alike, Rome managed to Romanize vastly disparate peoples living continents apart, creating a common political identity, generating loyalty among its far-flung subjects. The United States today can do no such thing. Because it's a democracy, the United States does not try or want to make foreign populations its subjects, and certainly not its citizens. So when the US government speaks of bringing democracy to the Middle East, it is not contemplating the people of Iraq and Afghanistan voting in the next US presidential elections. And this has been America's dilemma as a hyperpower. That is, America does not only dominate Americans. Even today, through its enormous economic leverage and its multinationals and its military bases in 60 countries, the United States projects its power into every corner of the world, from Bolivia to Indonesia to Kuwait. But outside its borders, there is no political glue binding the United States to the billions of people who live under its shadow. After September 11th, as I'm sure you remember, many influential voices, both conservative and liberal, began calling for an American empire, sometimes also called nation building, uh, in both cases referring to the aggressive interventionist use of American military force, with or without international approval, to effect regime change. That is, to replace dictatorships, rogue states, and other threatening regimes with pro-market, pro-democracy, pro-American governments. This position, which again, even liberals like Thomas Friedman embraced, was in many ways completely understandable, given the threats of terrorism and the seeming invincibility of the American military. But the great mistake made by these champions of American militarism lies in assuming that the spread of markets, democracy, and American brands and consumer culture would be enough to Americanize the nations of the world, creating common values and even a desire for American leadership. This assumption was as naive as the belief that liberated Iraqis were going to greet American troops with sweets and flowers. Wearing a Yankee baseball cap and drinking Coca-Cola does not turn a Palestinian into an American. Today, even with our own economy reeling, the United States still faces billions of people around the world, most of them poor, who want to be like Americans, but don't want to be under America's thumb. Who want to dress and live like Americans, but who are denied visas by the US Embassy. Who are told over and over that America stands for freedom, but see only the pursuit of American self-interest. So in my opinion, 
on the international front, the sort of larger, crucial challenge for the Obama administration will be whether America can address this problem of glue. Now, it's certainly going to help that our new president is African-American, biracial, that his middle name is Hussein, but that will only go so far. The real question is, can the United States find new creative mechanisms, whether institutional or commercial, or through some marriage of constitutional and international law, through which the United States can, without losing its sovereignty, create a kind of common identity with the billions of people around the world who feel dominated, giving others more of a stake in America's success and leadership. Uh, now, there is an internal challenge, too, and this has to do with uh, our immigration debate and our own tolerance and a glue within the United States. Uh, the question here is, can we remain a tolerant, open nation in the face of pervasive economic insecurity, if there are continuing layoffs and job losses, and, of course, the continuing threat of uh, terrorism. One of the main thrusts of my books uh, is that while the United States has certainly had its imperialist moments, the America uh, rose to world dominance really on the Dutch model, not through conquest, um, but rather through its continuing ability over the generations to attract the world's most enterprising, most innovative, and most talented, whatever their background. The question is, can re recession-stricken America remain such a magnet? Now, uh, my own answer, um, and I'm starting to wrap up here, is cautiously optimistic, actually, um, uh, which may surprise all of you. I mean, part of that, I think, is uh, just the election of Obama himself. I think it's we shouldn't underestimate the huge boost uh, to our reputation as a land of opportunity that, uh, that he's our president. And partly, um, the question is, where will the world's best and brightest go, actually? So what I want to do with my last five minutes is to look... Um, quickly at the United States, sort of the big rivals on the global scene. Uh, in particular, what about China um, that seems to be rising just when we're foundering? Um, now, my thesis actually has some very uh, clear and surprising implications for China's trajectory. I think that China, over the next uh, decade, will almost certainly continue to grow and to expand and develop and explode economically. It's doing all kinds of things right, where we've been doing them wrong. It's been pouring money into education. It's actually trying to, it knows creativity is a problem. It's trying to sort of impose that from the top down, uh, doing a much better job than the United States in many respects. But if my thesis is correct, China cannot become a hyperpower which again, is an extremely rare thing in history. And the reason uh, for this is simple. China is a quintessentially ethnically based nation. It is the opposite of an immigrant nation. And it is just not able to pull in the world's best and brightest talent. So while significant numbers of highly skilled Chinese engineers and scientists continue to move to the United States wanting to become US citizens, you don't see large numbers of skilled Americans and Europeans moving to China to become Chinese citizens. Now, China is a great test case for my thesis, and I'll be happy to admit uh, that I'm wrong if it turns out that it does become a hyperpower. China, of course, has 1.3 billion people. It doesn't want any immigrants. 
But my thesis still says that that fact will prevent it from becoming a hyperpower. And that's because, to reiterate my thesis, it's that at any given moment, the world's best human capital are never going to be found all within one ethnicity, not even the Chinese. Um, so until China can pull in the best mathematician from Chicago, the best engineer from Lebanon, the best guy from Jamaica, it can't achieve global uh, technological and therefore military and economic dominance. And this, by the way, may suit China just fine. It may not want to be a hyperpower, which as we've been learning uh, the hard way, brings its own burdens and global resentments. And maybe this is the most important point, don't forget, even if China doesn't become a hyperpower, the United States could still lose its hyperpower status. Um, that is, because of our economic problems, uh, we could fall this way. And China, along with, say, the EU or Russia, could grow so that we go back to a world of uh, superpowers or a multipolar world in which power is much more evenly distributed across several nations. Very quickly, let me talk about the EU. Um, I think this is a fascinating case. I see the European Union as actually pursuing its own version of strategic tolerance. Um, whereas the United States was a magnet, has tr always been a magnet for individuals, the EU's strategy is basically to turn itself into a magnet for nations. Its theory is, look, if you adopt these economic and human rights policies, you can join us. And through this version of strategic tolerance, it's been extremely successful. It's now 27 nations. Its collective GDP of 13 trillion is comparable to the U.S. But again, my thesis predicts that the EU is unlikely, extremely unlikely, to replace the U.S. as a hyperpower. Uh, first of all, there's no military power there, the, um, so that's just a, a big fact. But really more importantly, Europe continues to lag far behind the U.S. technologically, um, and that's because uh, Europe continues to be uh, very hostile to immigrants. It just cannot attract the best and brightest talent. In some ways, they have the worst of all immigration worlds because, as you know, they have a refugee problem, pockets of enclaves, unassimilable or unassimilating, very poor, often Muslim immigrants, but it's not been able to attract uh, the kind of uh, immigrants that it's wanted to. So to wrap up, um, I guess I'm actually more upbeat than most people um, I've talked to lots of people, and I know that at this moment, many in the United States, both abroad and domestically, um, believe that we're clearly, obviously in decline, and that the United States is already no longer a hyperpower, the era's over. I think it's really far too early to write the United States off. Um, I mean, this is one of the benefits of studying uh, past hyperpowers. Remember, the golden age of Rome spanned 100 years, and they were not all good years. During that time, the empire experienced many abyss-like downturns, including a horrific plague, invasions, and rebellions. Same with the British. In 1825, just after the British Empire entered its heyday, England actually suffered a stock market crash and bank panic, uh, followed by a serious recession. But Great Britain recovered and went on to enjoy another 70 years of global dominance. Now, um, there are many reasons for decline, and I think it's completely possible that uh, we may not be able to pull ourselves out of this economic mess in time, um, and that we will go back to a multipolar world. But my thesis is actually uh, optimistic in this sense, that there is no other country out there better suited to replace us, 
And also, um, the historic election of President Obama, if anything, is a startling reflection of tolerance. It's sort of not the uh, intolerance that I say is so starkly associated with decline. Now, there are lots of other things I'd like to talk about during Q&A. Um, a lurking question that I haven't gotten to for lack of time is, should the United States even want to be a hyperpower? Uh, in, my, uh, in a way, my thesis is suggesting that as a democratic hyperpower, we suffer all the costs of being a hyperpower. That is, we're, we were the object of global resentment, we're a target for the world's disaffected, without being able to enjoy any of the benefits that past hyperpowers did. When Rome conquered Dacia, which is Romania, it just looted and took a million pounds of silver and gold. Uh, here, not even the biggest hawk in the Bush administration ever talked about piping Iraq's oil straight to Texas. I mean, at least not openly. Uh, so, and is, is a good is a hyper is having a hyperpower good for the world? I'm happy to discuss that during Q and A too. By way of conclusion, let me just say that um, it's my own view, and I believe the view of most Americans now, that if America is uh, destined to remain or to recover and become globally dominant in the decades to come, it should be a hyperpower, not of coercion, imperialism, and military force, but rather a hyperpower of opportunity, dynamism, and moral force. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Uh, we'll now begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight, and we want to remind you that this is being recorded for audio and video podcasts, so uh, all questions must be asked at the microphone. Uh, there's two of us going around. Just raise your hand and wait for a staff member to get to you. Hi, my name is Sophia. Um, what are the dangers of being too tolerant, if any? Um, it really has to do with this glue point. And um, it's a great question, because uh, especially when I wrote this book, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very different moment right now. But one of the concerns that I had, and one of the reasons for writing the book was, asking this question, if you look at the history of hyperpowers, it seems like there is such a thing as too much diversity. That is, as these empires got to incorporate people that were increasingly different, speaking their own languages, doing their own things, uh, there was less and less of a collective identity. And I, I was saying that Rome did a very good job with its citizenship uh, and its cultural package. And so the question for the United States would be, have we reached a tipping point where our diversity, which has always been our source of strength, is now becoming a liability, triggering xenophobia and backlash and fragmentation. So that would be what I mean by the danger of too much tolerance, right? It's a, um, it would be, uh, in a way, pushing the limits of U.S. tolerance. So, um, so that, and you know, uh, especially when I wrote this book, of course you know what I'm talking about. I mean, there were, there were sign, danger signs. Um, I think that America's glue is strong enough to, I think it's remarkable that we have an ethnically and religiously neutral politically, political identity, and that's sort of the key. Um, so I think that American glue is very strong, actually, but that would be the answer to the question. Uh, my name is Anthony Clifton. Um, I'd like to ask you, do you see the 21st century as uh, uh, of being uh, the end of American exceptionalism because of the rise of the EU? Do you think that the, EU's be the EU being a democracy will overshadow the United States as a uh, global power and that, Amer the, uh, that American exceptionalism, meaning that it's unique in history, will end? 
Great question. Uh, I think it depends what uh, what we mean by American exceptionalism, right? I mean, there's there are good aspects of that and bad aspects of that. Um, I would say that one thing that is really unique about the United States, even today, even and even with Europe, is what we would call this uh, the rags to riches American dream or myth, right? Um, it's actually very idiosyncratic. If you travel around to Europe or even to Canada, uh, you'll see that it's it's very starkly American. This idea, and it's not the case that everybody actually can become Bill Gates, but this belief among significant sectors of the population that if you start very poor, no matter what, if you just work hard and are pretty lucky, that you might be able to be the next uh, Bill Clinton or now with Barack Obama. And that's a form of U.S. exceptionalism, I think, that is um, uh, exceptional. Uh, you know, and I, I, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Now, if things go badly with our economy and we can't take anything for granted, um, you know, if people start not being able to make it, the opportunity just isn't there, you know, th then in that sense we could lose that. But I think that is a, that's a, there are lots of uh, negative features of American exceptionalism that I won't go into. Um, but I think that's uh, sort of a, a, a positive one and, and why we've been this magnet, actually. Jim Thompson, uh, some observers have coined the phrase chimerica to uh, describe the intimate symbiotic relationship between the, uh, these two countries. But one of them, according to you, is uh, a hyperpower and the other is not. Um, one, obviously, America, is therefore embracing a form of tolerance perhaps absent in the other. Uh, when we have a world in which, for example, um, human rights and uh, labor conditions inspectors go to China to certify you know, conformity to American standards, when Google is criticized for um, uh, allowing itself to impose censorship in its internet uh, applications in China. It, is this going to be a fundamentally in, unstable relationship over time but be, between the hyperpower and the superpower? Uh, really interesting. I know that's uh, actually um, uh, Neil Ferguson's term, and, it's, and I thought a lot about it. I mean, obviously, he's right to a certain extent that uh, you know China is a huge economic force out there now, so it's something to contend with. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, the United States and China are always going to have to be sort of looking over each other's shoulder. I mean, and, and uh, working together. But as to that term, you know, sort of the the idea of a a, a more of a union or, or, or a link. Um, I'm a little bit more skeptical. I mean, maybe it's partly because of my own background. I write about, uh, I am Chinese, and I, I write a lot about nationalism, ethnic nationalism. And, uh, and in China, one of the reasons that they've been so successful in sort of, uh, well, first of all, there's been enormous amount of political liberalization compared to, say, 30 years ago. But one of the reasons that they've been so successful in um, uh you know this, their economic uh, growth is that they can they painted you know the imposition of human rights and democracy as sort of Western imperialism and they've tapped into this long-standing Chinese pride of you know rising again and we're not going to let anybody tell us what to do so it's been it's been a way to distract actually you know just to let have China get powerful so I see a lot of differences between the two societies there is a lot of symbio you know symbiosis also. 
Um, I know I haven't really answered your question. I, I hope that with the new administration and uh, with if, if China's government becomes younger and younger as it has, that it would be uh, a more hopeful, you know, that is that they would realize that they're mutually dependent in serious ways and, uh, you know, that there would be continued links. But for me, it wouldn't be, it would not be the right thing for us to send, I mean, it's a... Uh, uh, the Chinese are, you know, they're, they, they're not going to be uh, talked down to. So it, it's uh, more of the tone of the current administration, I think, would, be, uh, would make more sense, be more hopeful. Hi, Amy. I'm Bob White. I have a question for you. The, your examples of, of hyperpowers are sovereign entities. If you take the criteria that you use to, to benchmark them and identify them and you apply it to business, wouldn't Walmart be a hyperpower today? Yeah, you know, I've actually thought about this. I just, um, I've thought about these other forces. In fact, such a great question because I studied, um, in a way I thought of Christianity. The model in a way applies to Christianity, which is that it, Christianity was most successful when it was very open and absorptive and it kind of embraced these pagan traditions and it, it was that way that it was able to grow. And I've thought a little bit about the business model also. Um, and I do think, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that a lot of these uh, big global uh, businesses do operate on this principle. They do operate on this principle of sort of uh, strategic tolerance. Um, but I, it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So I sort of need to, I need to think about it. Uh, David Letterman, uh, my question is, how do you, uh, to follow on to what you were just saying, how do you integrate uh, the issues of fundamental uh, fundamentalism in the religious areas into uh, hyperpowers and what will happen next? Uh, well, my thesis has very clear implications for fundamentalism of any kind. It is that, that is, it is impossible to become a hyperpower through fundamentalism. And I think that should be intuitive to people. I think you can become, you, fundamentalism and ethno-nationalism and hatred, you can generate a lot of power from that. You can mobilize people around hatred. I, that was my first book, World on Fire. Uh, you know, and you could do that. But I guess the thesis of this book is that there are limits. It is, to put it crudely, it's inefficient um, uh, to use that sort of mechanism through slavery and killing people. The, the only way to be globally dominant is really if you can harness people um, and motivate them and reward them voluntarily. So my answer there is that, uh, um, you know, it's inher I don't see... Uh, any fundamentalist religious movement being able to conquer the world. I, I just think it, it, it's, it's not possible. Hi, my name is Colin Golden. Um, the, the British Empire was a creditor empire, uh, as was, I believe, the Roman Empire. Tsarist Russia was a debtor empire, and the United States is currently a debtor hyperpower. Um, to what, uh, where do you feel is the line? That, uh, what, uh, is there a certain amount of, uh, is there a limit to what the tolerance, to, to expansive tolerance, to no amount of expansive tolerance can actually counteract the, uh, the uh, inevitable downfall that seems to uh, accompany debtor empires? Uh well, I don't know if it's inevitable, but definitely. Let me just clarify my thesis. There are many, uh, this is when I refer to it as being asymmetrical. There are many, many reasons that hyperpowers or any empires decline. Uh, bad economic policies, maybe too much debt, overextension, national calamities or natural disasters, incompetence, bad leaders, corruption. So there are 
infinite numbers of reasons why empires can fall apart, right? So I'm not saying that it's only intolerance uh, or that tolerance alone is a, is a sufficient condition. Tolerance, for me, is a necessary but not sufficient condition. So um, I am not an expert, actually, on, on this particular question, so I don't, because it's actually a, a pretty... Um, uh, heated debate. I mean, I'm sure you've heard both sides. There's, there's, a, there's a response to that, too, that, you know, it's not just all debt is bad, blah, 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 blah. So I can't go to the merits there. But you're absolutely right that it's completely possible that that would be the cause of our downfall, having nothing to do with, uh, with tolerance. I'm Jim Burnett. Can the U.S. make better use of the United Nations to remain a hyperpower? And why did you skip past, past the Macedonians? Well, the Macedonians, I actually did, in my book, I don't. I, I, I uh, uh, tack on Alexander of Macedon's empire at the end of the Persians because he actually followed the Achaemenid model. In fact, people describe him as being, you know, uh, you know he was criticized for becoming so oriental. So, but it was very short, right, only 30 years, so he, and, and it, it, it fell apart after him. Um, the United Nations, I do discuss in my book. I mean, that's, uh, it, you know, um, it looked more likely 10 years ago. Obviously, the United Nations has had a lot of its own problems, um, and uh, it's, it's a long, long way from being a well-functioning democratic world government. Um, but your question is, uh, is better. It's more specific, and I, I think that... Uh, I think that um, it's not that I agree with everything, but I think that the Obama administration does have the right approach on this one, that whether it's uh, the UN or just gestures, it's, this, is, this goes to this question of international glue, this more diplomatic approach. Um, you know, I think that that could be uh, the right direction. Now, I do think it's a hard problem. I really do. I think that there, we're in a honeymoon period. If, if by some chance we stay globally dominant and we're the hyperpower again and we come back up, uh, there will be resentment. And there is this real question. What the Romans were so good at is the Romans made all these people around it feel that if Rome succeeded, they would succeed. So Rome's prosperity meant their prosperity. And we just have done an abysmal, worst possible job the last eight years. I mean, people just don't, don't around the world don't have, haven't believed that if we do well, they'll do well. And I think that can be changed. Um, but now we have this kind of econo this extra economic crisis to get out of. So um, I, I do think this problem of glue is, a, is, is, is tricky. Hi, my name is Robert von Bargen, and I'm primarily asking for a clarification. Maybe I misunderstood what you said about that compared to other empires or hyperpowers who kind of suck the blood out of the, some of the, you know, the resources. I mean, we, we're not putting oil in Texas, for example. But I, I would, would wonder whether or not you did, weren't thinking about the incredible standard of living that we've had in this country for the last 75 to 100 years which, of course, many critics of our history say is due to the fact that we have done that. I mean, the fact that we live so well is in part due to the fact that we have taken stuff Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I wasn't um, saying that we haven't, uh, you know, whether through the government or multinationals or, you know, exploited, you know, whether it's the Native Americans or all kinds of other... Uh, foreign populations. My only point was that it was fine. I mean, Rome, there, there was no question. It was a different world. You know, you, in that era, you conquered and you annexed and you just took it, right? Here, we at least have to pretend that we're not doing that. Um, 
and, and it's, you know, you can't, I mean, even the biggest hawks is my point, that you, even they couldn't just do it. So it makes the idea of being a hyperpower in this democratic age, it really, it really raises this question of why would you want to even be a hyperpower? Now, to end optimistically, I, in the best of worlds, I like to see the U.S. as sort of an accidental hyperpower. I sort of think that the neo, I have the opposite view of the neoconservatives, that it's not through militarism and doing anything we can to keep it. That's how I think it's the back, it's backwards. It's by being this kind of place where the best and brightest wanted to come, that we achieved technological dominance, which led to our military dominance, which produced it. So that's kind of where I am on that one. I think that's it. Thanks.